Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Anything But Typical podcast. And we have the Anything But Typical Greg Arts on our show today, which is going to be so much fun. I know I'm going to learn a lot. I've gotten to spend some time with Greg over the past, gosh, man, I guess it's almost five years knowing you when you launched Punch Alert. And we will dive into that story because it's fascinating and it, it continues to evolve. So I'm, I'm really anxious to dive into that. But here's the scenario. You and your family, your close-knit family, all tennis players, you're, you're making your way through the parking lot one more time uh, at Old Providence Country Club, somebody, or the, the racket club, mm -hmm. somebody is talking about you. Hey, there's Greg Arts and his family, those tennis studs and studettes. What would you like somebody to be saying about you when they know that, or they think that they can't hear or that you can't hear or understand what you're saying about, or they're hmm. saying about you? Well, well, Gary, well, first off, thanks for, so much for having me on the show. It's so great to speak with you today. Uh, it's a great question. I think what I'd love to hear is uh, if he's talking about me personally, you know, man, he's working hard out there on the court. He doesn't give up on a ball. You know? <laughs> and I think that was kind of going back to my early days. I don't know that I ever had the most talent of folks out on the court, but I certainly worked, you know, up there. I worked, the, I worked the hardest or that was, that was what I aimed to do anyway. So, um, so yeah, I think that kind of continues today. That's something I've extended into my, to my, uh, my work life and, and my personal life as well. And, I think something that allows you to stand out, you know, to reach the to reach the best of your own ability. Obviously, that we all have our limits. Mm -hmm. I certainly reached them as far as tennis is concerned. Uh, tried that professional tour and definitely didn't have what it what it took for that. But um, but I really got every ounce of whatever I my body could deliver. I think uh, for that game, and that's what I'm trying to do really with my whole life is just impact the world in a positive way to the best of my own ability. Um, certainly, you know, you mentioned being with my family and that's a, that's a joy and, you know, uh, not that I necessarily need other people to notice, but certainly hope I'm extending that joy to my own family. We're all having fun out there. And although we get a little bit competitive and serious at times, <laughs> uh, obviously having fun and, and keeping things in perspective is the most important thing. Well, if nobody's keeping score and everybody gets a trophy, kind of what's the point, right? I mean... <laughs> You can have healthy competition and have a lot of fun, right? I agree completely. Uh, I've always been super competitive. And, you know, you've got your drills and then you got your points. And I always wanted to get onto those points. And uh, I'll tell you, my family's similar, especially my son. My goodness. He, he has, if he's not competing, it's just not happening. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So, Greg, let's jump in. But first, for the listeners that don't know you, Greg is the CEO and co-founder of Punch Alert. And, and I want to go back prior to that to start this story uh, to give people a bit of your background. And then we'll really dive into what Punch Alert does. But when you were beginning as a trader, you were an associate at City, uh, And then you were a trader at a, a hedge fund, I believe. What mm -hmm. drew you to a, a career in trading? In trading, well, that's a good question. You know, I went to school at Cornell University uh, in upstate New York. And, you know, when I was going to college, because of tennis, I was I was recruited to Cornell and I wanted to go to an Ivy League school. I had that in my head, but I was also thinking like Stanford and, you know, because um, 
my my father was an entrepreneur in the technology space and a successful one, and I kind of had that passion, that itch as well. I wasn't quite good enough to make it to Stanford, and uh, as far as uh, tennis is concerned, um, also my mother would have uh, would have um, you know had a stroke if I moved that far away. But uh, uh, but anyway, going to Cornell and studying computer science, you know, I didn't in the you know ninety seven to oh one the opportunities I had, I just happened to be exposed to tended to be in finance, you know, in Manhattan. And I had this sense of, okay, yeah, maybe it'd be interesting to work in Manhattan, um, you know, in my, in my 20s anyway. So um, I got an internship at Citigroup uh, in, in between my junior and senior year, worked there in the Muni, Muni Bond uh, department uh, in building kind of systems, spreadsheets, but learning the industry, learning fixed income, learning how to leverage these kind of Muni programs, derivatives. And, uh, and then I came back. So after I graduated, played some tennis, um, uh, briefly, uh, professional tennis briefly. And then I, uh, I real, I called up Citigroup, said, okay, I'm ready to start working. There was a hiring freeze at the time. This is, you know, shortly after September 11th. So, um, so I had to apply, uh, to the analyst program and I got into the analyst program. So I really just wanted to get started working. And, you know, I, I definitely had a strength in quantitative endeavors, you know, math and, and uh, in computer science, more so math, I would say, um, and you know, obviously, uh, interest in business and so on. So, um, you know, if I had gone to school in Stanford, I might have worked in technology right off the bat. But since I was in New York, I went into finance, and I definitely liked the appeal. So the trading kind of—I was building systems, but then I ultimately became a trader. You know, I was a, a trader on the Muni ARB desk, and then the interest rate option desk, and. You know, I definitely loved the early learning curve uh, of of trading and the mathematical challenge of it, the communication challenge of it, the speed, the ability to multitask and be aware of so many different things at the same time, having an understanding of how all these things interact and macro changes and news. And and so really, um, that I found it really appealing. But what happened was after a couple of years of it, your kind of learning curve flattens out and you become kind of pigeonholed you get very good at very specific things and you continue to do those things and it gets a bit repetitive. The appeal of the amount of money you're managing starts to fade a little bit, not for everyone, but I certainly started to feel that. And I want, I started thinking more about fulfillment and like, how can I actually make a positive impact that led me back to technology. And so kind of my next chapter, my next story really evolved after that. Um, you know, lastly, I'll say when it came to finance, um, I think I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder. I felt like I had something to prove, you know, being competitive in tennis in school, you have this kind of competitive comparative mindset where you're always thinking about, okay, how are my grades compared to other people? How is my performance compared to someone else? You know, do I, um, you know, how much money am I making compared to someone else? And these are obviously not, uh, great things to be thinking about, but, but admittedly I was in, in you know, and, but I think it took that like finally to get to the point where I was working for this hedge fund, I was, I was doing well, and I, I almost felt like I'd proved it, at least to myself, like, okay, if I just need to make lots of money, I think I can do that now. I think I have proven that. Maybe now I should think about ways I can actually, you know, help someone and uh, build something. Yep. So that, that's how it happened. Nope, that makes sense. Cornell's my neck of the woods. I grew up about 20 minutes from Cornell. My first business was right around the corner there. So know that know that area pretty well. But So you know the um, winner, too. <laughs> well, yeah, that's why I'm in North Carolina now, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so you had you had that part of your career, and you're coming to that realization. 
prior to any of that, had you ever envisioned eventually becoming an entrepreneur or going into to business ownership at all? Yeah, no, that's something I've been thinking about um, from a, from a pretty early age. Um, I would say, you know, during college, certainly my my uh, you know my friends and roommates we would we would discuss ideas. So we would constantly kind of talk about ideas, and you know, the internet was kind of bubbling while I was at school, and so we were talking about some things in that area. I never pulled the trigger uh, on those things, you know. But uh, but when I was lived when I was working at Citigroup, you know, my roommate. Um, one of my, my, both my roommates, Abhishek Lakshman Ryan, Vedran Rosich, you know, we were living in Manhattan, working in Manhattan. And so we were working long hours, but we'd come back and we'd, at night, we'd be talking about various ideas. Um, Abhishek quit Lehman Brothers and went back to India. And uh, I continued to work at Citigroup and then a hedge fund for three more years, but we stayed in close touch. And ultimately, you know, it was conversations with him, it was brainstorms with him that ultimately led me to have the confidence to, to leave the industry and get involved in building a technology startup for the first time. And that was Indivest? That was Indivest, yeah. Okay, yeah. So so describe for the listeners a little bit what that is and and for you the beginning process of of founding that, of getting that off the ground. What was that like for you? Yeah, so that was a really interesting, fun, tricky endeavor just because it was overseas. So it was in a country I'd never been to. In a, in a you know a third world country at that so it didn't have the infrastructure but we basically saw and Abhishek kind of led me to learn about the opportunities in India you know at the time uh, there were only you know roundabout numbers call it 20 30 million people out of you know a billion plus uh, that were online at the time and so there was really many different opportunities to take these kind of upstart businesses and apply kind of an internet technology lens to it and and uh, and build something great. So we kind of had this idea, you know, Abhishek also had a great network of young entrepreneurs in Charlotte, in, sorry, in Charlotte, in uh, Bangalore. And so we started to meet these people and realize, well, okay, there's some really smart people working on some really interesting things. And we were able to kind of start seeing our way through our first and even our second deal um, and, uh, and so what we ultimately aimed to do, cause we were trying to think about what we wanted to start and, um, what we initially, you know, aimed to do when I left my job and I had to describe Indivest to people, I basically described it as kind of a tech incubator in Bangalore. Of course, at the time we didn't really use the term incubator. Uh, so I don't remember what term I used, but it was, a, it was an aggregation of, we're going to raise money to build a, a web development team, but also we're going to raise another pocket of money to invest in these early stage ventures, meaning we're going to invest 10 grand up to 50 grand. Uh, we ended up doing kind of special purpose vehicles of larger deals, um, but it started out as we're going to find opportunities, small scale opportunities where we can get deeply involved, even operational, and help build these kind of technology enabled businesses in India and really take advantage of the growth and in infrastructure that we saw coming in the country. So I'm going to interject here real quick because I, you're, your path thus far in this journey is really interesting. You know, um, your father, we can talk about him and what he did at Computer Associates, which was amazing, amazing yeah. company. You could have easily said, you know, I'm going to uh, ride on daddy's coattails and, you know, but I, I've never heard that from you or seen that from you at all, at all. You know, you, you've been kind of your own guy, uh, you know, you, have 
tremendous respect for your family, which is great, but you've kind of been your own competitive guy, which I think is awesome. And the fact that you had these entrepreneurial thoughts at such an early age, a lot of people feel like, oh, well, that's my destiny. I got to jump into that immediately. And then they, you know, some hit the wall multiple times before, and sometimes they, they strike it lucky. I know people that have hit it lucky in the early 20s uh, as well. But for anybody listening out there going, you know, man, I should have done that when I got right out of school or whatever, or somebody that's maybe even in that place right now thinking about, well, gosh, should I go do this now? I want to hear about why you end up going and why you didn't pull the trigger on that and, and the lessons that you learned on a massive treadmill that was moving at a high speed. I mean, anything in Manhattan and dealing with finance and then hedge funds on top of it, like that's some crazy stuff. What were some of the things that you're glad you learned then before jumping headfirst into the pond of entrepreneurship? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. And thank you for the, for the compliment. Um, you know, my parents, my father and my mother both have been very, very successful in their own rights. And, uh, and, and they've been great mentors, advisors to me. You know, really what my father's done in the technology space is, is just been, you know, a, a, it's been something that I've seen as, you know, initially I was actually very sensitive to the fact that he was so successful. I found it, even though he's such a modest person um, and such a supportive person and father, you know, I found it to be almost, uh, you know, something I wouldn't share. For example, I would never share at Citigroup um, that, uh, you know, that my father was a successful business person that he had co-founded Computer Associates, such a large, uh, such a large business, because um, I felt like that might make people treat me somewhat differently. Um, and I felt that very much when I actually worked at Computer Associates, which I obviously couldn't do. I worked there very briefly. Uh, I did an internship there. I worked there for six months, and no matter what I did, everyone said I was wonderful. I was like, "I'm not that wonderful, really." <laughs> so stop, uh, stop treating me that way, please. But um, so, but even in Citigroup, I had this chip on my shoulder, and again, that that's kind of I had to prove I could do it without even support. And I remember it culminated when I was leaving Citigroup. I was going to this hedge fund. It was just gonna be three of us in a room, and I remember like my boss's boss's boss trying to convince me not to leave, and he said something to me. He said. Do you even know any entrepreneurs that have actually been successful? They all fail. I mean, for real. Do you know anyone? And I remember <laughs> thinking, oh, my father, I didn't say it. I didn't say it. I said, no, I don't. And then later I walked out of the room and I'm thinking to myself, what is wrong with me? <laughs> why, why, why did you just tell him? But I just had this thing where I didn't share it. Now, of course, I tell everyone about my father because I'm so proud of him. And I've grown up a little bit to realize like it's an asset. It's not something I need to overcome is this insecurity. But uh, but that's the way I was. So anyway, um, he's been a great mentor to me. And so is my mother. So I, I listen to smart people and I try and surround myself with smart people. That's the best advice I can give to anyone. You know, early in my days at Citigroup, um, my first boss there, Joe Girasi, who's about, I don't know, six or seven years older than me, but he was one of the most successful people at Citigroup uh, at the time. He was already a managing director in his late 20s, which was very non-standard. And, um, and we're still friends today. And he's still a mentor today, really. 
uh, as, as I've kind of created that kind of relationship with many people. But I remember being only maybe a year, year and a half in to my stinted city group and I had an idea, you know, always had an idea. And so, I, you know, we were spending all this money on, on these software developers to build this system to manage all this muni tender option bond risk. We'd spent over a million dollars. It wasn't very efficient. And I remember thinking, my goodness, maybe I could leave and just start my own company. I could sell software to Citigroup and the other banks and anyone managing muni risk. And, you know, I had this idea. And I remember I pulled him aside and I, I asked him if we can get off, off the floor and get into a meeting. And I said, Joe, here's my idea. I'm thinking of leaving. I kind of always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I feel like this is an opportunity, but I want to do it with you. And I, I want to, I want to like, you know, work with you from outside Citigroup. He's like, what do you think? And he said, uh, he said, Greg, the idea is fine, but it's a, but this is a terrible idea for you personally. You're way too young. You haven't learned a thing yet. And, uh, and he convinced me to stay. He convinced me to kind of grow up a bit, learn more about business, learn more about the industry, establish more connections, establish that base. And I'm very grateful he did that. Now, regardless of whether or not that idea would have worked or not, he convinced me to stay and I ended up spending five years, five more years in finance and building up that base, that network, that proof that I can actually be successful in that industry as well. Um, so, and he became, and, and he ended up investing and supporting many of my, most of my uh, technology initiatives later. So um, mentors really, and just surrounding yourself by, by good people. Um, that's the number one thing, you know, the hedge fund experience uh, was also really helpful just because you know, at Citigroup, I was working with thousands of people in the middle of a trading floor. I didn't even see windows. I didn't see lights. I didn't see, you know, it was, it was uh, you know, one very different end of the spectrum. Then I worked for a, for a hedge fund, you know, and, and I was one of four people in a room. You know, it was really just four of us. Ended up being others. But, you know, it started out with just a few of us in a room building something from, from nothing. Now, it was a little atypical. We had $250 million to manage right away. So that was nice. But... Um, but the amount of, you know, the amount of uh, um, responsibility I had and the, you know, wearing different hats in business building and model building and trading and relationship building and all those things I found really fun. So I kind of got that feel for what is entrepreneurship uh, in that environment just because of the, the size. And then, you know, later I decided to get into technology. What a great answer. Um... Isn't it funny, Ben? So we've been doing this two and a half years and there's this very present common theme among all the, I would say the vast, vast majority of all of our guests, humility and learning from others, this, that teachability yes. and surrounding themselves by wise counsel. And I, I, I just think it's really cool because and there's a competitiveness, like most of our folks <laughs> are athletes and that kind of thing too. And we actually like keeping score, but it doesn't mean that it's, you know, I have to win and you have to lose. We can actually, you know, have fun in competition without it, you know, somebody has to die here. Um, but the fact that your that mentor was able to speak truth and say, man, Mm -hmm. you you aren't there yet it's not time for you yet that's hard to hear as a, yeah. a young person in particular it's very hard and especially when you got fire in the belly like you have clearly and had then but it shows depth of wisdom and humility as far as i'm concerned that you paid attention 
kind of swallowed your pride and like, okay, I still have stuff to learn. And, you know, it, it's, it's paying dividends as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, kudos to you and kudos to the mentors that you've surrounded yourself with. Well, thank you, Gary. I think that's true. And it's, I've certainly also made the mistake of not always listening, you know, definitely had uh, ideas along the way that I probably wasn't seeking out that negative feedback as I should have been, you know, I was seeking out the positive feedback that you want to hear and only listening to that. So I've certainly made that mistake. And I, I would say, you know, yes, I was fortunate to listen to Joe early in my career. And, um, and I've tried to surround myself with people that I just really respect. And in addition to my parents and other, other folks that I really respect, I, I do, uh, I do actually try and seek out honest, true, honest, tell me what you think of this, of this, uh, next path. Um, I'm not just looking for what I kind of want to hear. The easy path tends not to always be the right one. Right. Well, yeah, that, that humility leads to that other part of the constantly learning and growing and listening to others, right? Cause if you don't have the humility. You think, you know, everything, you're not going to pay attention to what a mentor or would be mentor would be saying to you. So you can't learn from that anyway. So no, it makes sense. Right. So, Greg, as we get closer to Punchler, I want to, I'll, I'll say, bundle those few experiences that you had as, as founders and leaders of companies prior to Punchler. What were some of the lessons that you learned in those first few founding experiences, those uh, ownership type experiences that you've now been able to apply to Punchler as a as a leader or a business owner? Yeah. Well, I think. Uh, and I continue to learn, so I, I wouldn't say I've solved everything with, with Punch. I, I think I've continued to learn quite a bit from this experience with Punch that I'll take into whatever I do next. Um, but certainly that founding team is absolutely critical. And and so I've had different types of founding teams along the way. Um, and, you know, sometimes I find you get involved with someone either because you're quite close friends with them or... Um, or because it's opportunistic, you know, it happens to be something where you've come up with an idea some, together, um, or, um, you know, again, some, sometimes timing just makes these things happen organically and it feels right and you go with it without that lens of, well, maybe I should think about the different scenarios and how this plays out and make sure we're, we're on the same page in all these scenarios. If it, if it doesn't work, how are we going to handle it? If it really works out great, how are we going to handle it? And play it out in your head and play those in and not just in your own head but talk to people about those scenarios and think about it i think it's worth taking a pause early in the companies you know when when it's everything's very flexible and have those real conversations about what are are we in this for the long haul how long can we take these low salaries what do we expect to happen what what if we don't what if that doesn't happen in six months a year 18 months so those are the types of things i just i I think I've maybe done a little bit better job in over time and something I think much more about just make those changes, have the equity conversations, just have those things early on. The hard conversation sometimes because maybe the salaries come up and, and it's it's not maybe everyone's salaries aren't the same. And, and, you know, when you're first founding a company, it's like, well, why is that? And, uh, you know, it also if you're starting a company in your 20s and you have no family, that's one thing. You're starting when you're a little older and you got a family to worry about. That's different, and that doesn't always work 
with uh, other members of your team. It doesn't always sit well with investors, but you have to have those conversations really early on and document. I think just document things more. You know, put an employment agreement in place, even for yourself and your co-founders. It seems kind of silly. It's like, why, why do that? Well, things don't always work out the way you like. And that's, that's actually something I've learned uh, very recently with a very tough situation. We're going through a punch now, but um, uh, with a transition period. But uh, uh, yeah, so those are the types of things. I think just more attention, more patience early on. I'm by nature not uh, very patient. I like to get into it and get into the meat of it. And, you know, I'm not the, I don't read through the legal documents to the extent that I perhaps should. Uh, and um, it's like, it's like stretching before you play. Like just, I don't do enough of it. And that's the kind of thing I feel like uh, you kind of have to do in business as well. So let's do- dive into Punch Alert before we even go into your experience with it or what you're doing, because I think especially with some of the stuff that's been going on in our, in our country, right? It's extremely relevant right now. In fact, this podcast got rescheduled and, and there's obviously been stuff that's happened after that, that applies directly to you. So describe what punch alert is and what it does. Let's start there. Sure. So punch alert is a cloud based platform, a software as a service platform for managing emergency communications. So we think of it as a life cycle of an incident when there's an emergency, be it at a school or a YMCA or a church or other organization of business, you know, some sort of facility where you got lots of people there. Communication is really, really critical. We learned this from, and what really inspired us to get started on this was Sandy Hook. So uh, at Sandy Hook, obviously, uh, communication was a big challenge. It took several minutes before 911 was called. There was a real challenge of communicating with the teachers in the classrooms. So if you think about all the different components of an emergency, you know, there may be two-way radios used, there are phone calls that happen, there's texting that happens, maybe there's an intercom system, there's a 911 call, there's a video surveillance. So all these things kind of exist and they're great point solutions, but we didn't, what we found were they weren't really interconnected very well. And with the, you know, with the, when we got started on this, uh, obviously the ability to leverage cloud computing, number one, and mobile apps, number two, to really make this all tied together was the opportunity. So we built a mobile app on iOS and Android to start, again, with a backend cloud infrastructure to enable two-way communication throughout the life of an emergency from reporting an emergency to then setting up a kind of an internal responder team to two-way communicate and manage that incident, send out mass notifications, locate folks as necessary, make sure everyone's okay, resolve the incident and have a detailed report at the end. Later, we added a missing critical component, which is the 911 call itself, uh, which is our E911 infrastructure. We call 911 Plus, which we think really kind of ties it together. Um, but that, in a sense, is 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 what we've created and really trying to integrate as necessary with other systems. So Punch Alert ends up being kind of the central repository, the central hub for all communication that occurs during an emergency. So, and we can cut this part out if, if you end up wanting to, but with, with the uh, the Texas uh, shooting that happened, take us through, if Punch Alert were a part of that, of that school or of that district, take us through what that experience looks like of what Punch Alert's doing for the school, for the parents, for the police, whatever that, that's going on. Take us through what that, that looks like. Yeah, sure. So, 
you know the the main use case would have been in that scenario and again that's not a that's not a it's such a horrible incident and it's it's not something i've studied yet the way i have others yeah and like, if you want to use a different example that that you know more specific details on you can that's perfectly fine well really any incident like that i mean the active shooter incident unfortunately is just it, it, it exists in this country and it shouldn't and and that, that's why we got started on this. Uh, you know, fortunately, Punch Alert is now used for all sorts of other incidents where people don't, where they don't have that same loss of life, and that's 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 great. But um, the active shooter is obviously kind of the core use case that we we wanted to help with. So I think it's it's fair to talk about what just happened. Um, you know, what happened in, in our system is em employees, faculty, and staff, in the case of K twelve, have this app on their phone, and what what can happen is that the moment anyone sees something that doesn't look right, we really encourage them to not have a fear of reporting something before it turns into something bad. You know, so you want to really lower that threshold. Don't worry about a false alarm. False alarms are fine. They happen. So someone would have reported an emergency during that event. Now, hopefully before any shots were fired. And what would have happened is that would have if they selected the, the option, simultaneously called 911 and notified their on-site responder team, 911 would have seen the school name. Uh, we even have the ability to share the exact location of wherever that caller is in the school uh, through a new partnership, which we can talk about. Um, but what it would do is it starts the 911 call, but it also creates this internal responder thread. Everyone's phones start going beep, beep, beep. Um, and we even have hardware now, so it could create audible alerts. Oh, we have wearable panic buttons as well, so the report could have happened from a physical panic button or the mobile app. Uh, but usually it's the mobile app that starts it, and then responders start communicating. What's going on? They would have identified it as active shooter. It would have been categorized as such, and if there's an emergency plan for active shooter, it would have been immediately available to everyone. Uh, an internal responder would have said, okay, this is real. We're going to release the emergency to all faculty and staff. Lock down the building. Here's the plan. Everyone report back your status. They can all indicate, I'm okay, I'm not okay. And simply by opening up the app, there are gonna be pins on a map and the internal team is is gonna be, they're gonna see that 911's been called. If 911 was not called at the initiation of the emergency, someone else could do it. It notifies everyone else. Oh yes, Jane Doe has called 911. They started the call at this time, they ended the call at that time. So it's this transparent chat thread, you know, to overly simplify it. Uh, with location awareness during this emergency, including 911, including mass notifications. It will send out text messages for those that don't have the app or, you know, so we don't rely on just the app. We send out through all these other channels, text, phone calls, email, you know, other integrated sources. And hopefully it just gets everyone on the same page so they lock doors or evacuate as quickly as possible. And in that sense, you know, reduce that loss of life. Right. And, and the communication throughout the entire system at that point, too, allows people to be on the same page, know what's going on, where people are, how people are, things like that. that that's right. Um, so often during these types of incidents, people are just repeating themselves. People that do have the same information, you call one person, you text another person, you go on the PA you, and, and it's just your this is time. This is critical time. And so that's they say seconds count right during an emergency and that it couldn't be more true. So I know this has applicability, sporting arenas, those kind of things as well, besides schools, all of that. But there's also a commercial application, let's say for grins and giggles, 
Um, this is not just a finance town. It's also becoming a more of an entrepreneurial town, which I love about it. Mm -hmm. But we also happen to have a very large public utility that has, you know, uh, assets all over the country. And some of those assets, you know, can be dangerous places, whether it be wind farms or high voltage electricity things, or you've got nuclear power, et cetera. I could see applications in that kind of a, an environment in an in industry, like a multi-location thing. How, how would you use punch alert in that kind of a scenario? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, what you do is you kind of set up these different geofences, we call them. So you kind of create these different protected areas. If you're in, you know, field service, maybe that's actually defining an entire state or, or larger area. Or maybe it's just your buildings and you're worried about the folks that are actually on site at your, at your office. So you can kind of define these areas and these areas based on your phone and where it knows that it is based on what geofence you're in, it's going to route incidents based on where you are correctly. So you'll always have the ability to route to the correct 911 call center. But the real thing beyond the 911 connectivity we're providing is that internal routing correctly based on where you are to the right people. So I can route an emergency from if I'm out in the field and it's a an injury of sorts, I'm out, you know, fixing uh, an electric pole and I get injured. I can report that and get help very quickly. Maybe there's an internal monitoring center. Maybe they layer in a third party monitoring center. We don't provide that service ourselves, but um, we have partners that do that and big firms, big energy companies have their own kind of command centers anyway. So it routes it in there. And then from that command center, they can then release the emergency to other people that may or may not need to get involved. If it's an injury, you probably don't need to release it to anyone. But if it were some sort of, um, you know, dangerous situation going on or weather event um, that could really become dangerous, like a tornado or something like that, then, you know, the the information just gets routed and mass notified very, very quickly uh, in that scenario. So it's the routing, number one. And then number two, based on the use case, you know, we've, we've just introduced this hardware. And for those listening on a podcast, they won't be able to see this, but uh, this little device here is something that took us uh, years to develop. And now we've deployed it and it's a wearable panic button. So there are, you know, there've been so many great enhancements, uh, advancements rather in IOT, where with costs come down and the technology gets smaller and, and the battery usage gets lower. And all of a sudden now you can do these things to automate emergency awareness that you couldn't do before. So now, yeah, having a physical panic button versus a mobile app, sometimes there's a need for that. Not everyone is so great with their smartphones. Um, Number one, but the other thing is just how can you automate an, uh, an emergency? What if someone falls from that high dangerous area or they're of a certain age where that's a, a risk? Or in our case, what we've actually created is the ability to activate automatically in water. We've deployed these panic buttons to lifeguards. So that's kind of a separate story, but YMCA's have always been a great customer of ours. And we I, I identified a problem that was not being solved. Uh, and, a, you know, another terrible tragedy, unfortunately, uh, in 2017 inspired us to try and solve this problem. And so our panic button does automatically activate in water and it and has a fall algorithm as well. So based on the type of fall, uh, we can activate an emergency automatically. Again, if we can know about an emergency instantaneously and they don't even have to change their behavior at all, they don't have to do anything, that's the ideal scenario. And hopefully that's where we're all going. That panic button is pretty cool to see the evolution of what 
so for those, since this is an audio only podcast at this point, <laughs> we do need to do something about a YouTube channel because we've been it's, recording these things. Like it's we, in, we need to it's do in process. It's in process. Yeah. So, but anyway, the, what you showed was about a, a one inch tall by maybe three eighths of an inch round mm -hmm. panic button mm -hmm. that the first iteration was probably twice that size in length, maybe, maybe a little bit wider or, you know, bigger in, in diameter, mm -hmm. but that's really cool. The fact that it's an accelerometer plus the fact, and it's a wearable mm -hmm. plus the fact that it's water initiated. So having been a, a lifeguard in, as a kid mm. and in, into college, there were more than a couple times that I had to go in to save some, you know, a kid that was in over their head and literally. <laughs> and so, you know, yeah, that would have been a pretty cool thing to have. And now when, when we've got a litigious society to be able to document and show, yes, we did, you know, we went in immediately versus hearsay or whatever. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. And, and, you know, right now more than ever, it's important just because there's a significant lifeguard shortage going on across the country. Um, so it's very, very hard to get lifeguards. So the YMC of Charlotte, for example, we're here in Charlotte and the YMC of Charlotte's a great local customer of ours. You know, they put in a mandate, this was a while ago, have two lifeguards on duty at all times. Um, but that became nearly impossible because they had to re reduce it, not because they didn't want to or they didn't want to supply the funding for it, but it was just, you just can't find that many uh, lifeguards. And so across the country, you see this where there's single lifeguard situations, that's when it's riskiest, you know, for their own protection. What if they fall in? What if they have a seizure? What if, you know, all the what ifs you can think about uh, to protect them. But more commonly, they're going in to help someone else and that's an emergency. You need to get them back up as quickly as possible. And uh, and that's just the way that, that use case works. We didn't come up with this. We weren't smart enough to think of that. This was the YMCA risk managers flat out telling us this is what we need. And we were like, oh, well, we have this mobile app. We've got this software. This will help you. And they're like, not at the pool. That's not going to help us at all. They don't even have their phones. Uh, we need something. We need to know that a lifeguard's in the water instantly. And that led us down a path um, to where we are today. Yeah, so you many... would hope that lifeguards don't have their iPhones because they should have their eyes on the pool, not on a screen scrolling through whatever. Um, that's right. Yeah, that's that's really good. Yeah. <laughs> and, and one more point, just for people listening, this, this I see this all the time with entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs have this focus of hey, this is what we're going to do with this thing. And this is, but when they pay attention like you did to the customers and the, their pain points, oftentimes it'll take a, a different trajectory, the, tra trajectory that they never had, you know, anticipated. And that usually becomes the bigger star of the show than what they originally envisioned, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. I think it's a great point. I think it, it's a lesson that I keep learning, which is try not to get too married to any one idea, especially not your own ideas, you know, um, because you have that natural tendency. So just just being aware of these kind of natural mistakes and tendencies, I think we, we might all have to some degree. I certainly did. Um, 
can allow you to just really be open-minded to the to the possibility of okay maybe that was a bad idea or maybe it's a good idea but it's not it's not the thing we really should be focusing on and uh and you know so often we have these solutions kind of looking for problems to solve instead of just thinking about what are the problems <laughs> and then let's go solve them and this is this was a scenario where uh we saw a problem and we went to solve it um you know, one thing I will say in the emergency space, you know, in the life safety space is certainly it's partially emotionally driven. And um, and I think that's been important to me in this chapter of my life. But it also, you, even when you're doing something and you've got passion for what you're doing because you believe in it and you believe in the positive impact you're going to have, it's also important to make sure that the economics line up really well for your business. Um, and And that's something that um, not to say we didn't, I think we did. I mean, we knew kind of our strategy going in to build this product, which aquatics is, you know, a, a good size market. It's not the biggest of markets that we could have addressed. Um, but it was a market that was completely unaddressed. It was a problem that was completely unaddressed. So that's why we kind of got into it. But I think if you can marry that passion, that l really listening to the problem, as you said, and the business model works and makes sense and scales, that's, I think, when you have something really special. So to that point of listening and finding problems and, and creating solutions, is, is that with uh, with COVID, is that where Sentry came from? Yeah, that's right. Um, Sentry was something our customers were asking us for uh, directly. They, you know, obviously the number of emergencies in our system uh, went down dramatically uh, during COVID because nobody was on site anymore. So we're like, oh, no more emergencies. Well, that's good, I guess, but nobody's nobody's <laughs> on site. So I guess they're not, they're also not learning and they're not doing other stuff and they're not meeting people. So that's not good. But uh, yeah, so we, we really, um, you know, our schools kept us going, kept us alive. Our corporate customers, you know, many of them paused and we had to kind of look at ourselves and say, well, what are we solving the right problem right now, given this environment we're in? COVID could last, you know, at the time we didn't know how long. Um, but we need to make sure we're solving problems for these customers now. And the problem that they had was, you know, we couldn't, we, we want to reopen. We just can't unless we have this new process in place where we know the people that are coming on site don't have COVID. And, and not that we're going to test everyone on the way in because that didn't work, but the uh, ask them, allow them to self-report on their, on their health have you left the country? Have you had any of these symptoms? Have you been around anyone with these symptoms? And uh, ultimately, yeah, it'll, it, it, it was a very fast development effort. I would say our team did a, our development team did a really great job of building that product beginning to end. It was probably our smoothest and fastest um, development effort. Um, but we had such a clear set of requirements that we needed to fulfill and, and uh, we onboarded customers really quickly and really successfully. It was very simple. And um, and so, yeah, that was definitely born out of COVID and something that, you know, it's still used today, uh, but the usage has, has certainly died down now that we don't have this necessity to, you know, fill out a survey every time we uh, arrive on site. Yeah, that makes sense. I So I went to the World Series of Poker last year and there were all of these things that we had to do to prove uh, hey, were you vaccinated within a certain amount of time and all that? And 
having a system like what you're talking about with Sentry would have made the process infinitely smoother for, for people going to events, especially as things started opening back up. So. Yeah, yeah, that that must have been very wild and interesting and fun. Um, yeah, you, fun. Uh, fun <laughs> is maybe not the ideal world, well, but ideal, uh, ideal word because they didn't know how to handle it because they didn't have some sort of system like this in place. I see. I see. Yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, you don't have that same confidence. You know, you arrive on site, at least if you know you had to go through these hoops, run through these hoops and answer these questions or whatever you had to do to get on site, it's a pain. But during a pandemic, it at least makes you feel better, like I'm around other people that did the same thing. And, yep. and so that allows these things to at least exist in the first place. And right. otherwise, otherwise, we couldn't have it. Yeah, no, exactly. So you've been uh, you've been running Punch Alert for over 10 years now, right? Or 10 years at this point. Um, somewhere about there, what have been some of the, the hurdles that you faced along the way? And the reason why I ask that is when you get into emergencies or wearables or reporting type things, there can be red tape that comes along with it, right? So wh what are some of the hurdles that you've had to overcome along the way? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I would say that the number one hurdle for any startup is time. I think for us, everything we've done, I'm very proud of, but in general, things have taken longer than I would have liked. And, and time is that thing you're really up against as a startup, I believe. So you have to kind of achieve these milestones, but you gotta achieve them in a certain amount of time and just to find that kind of escape velocity. And um, so I think we created products that were really effective at solving our customers' problems. And we raised money along the way, and I'm very grateful for my network of investors, but we never, raised enough money to really, really step on, step our feet on the gas when it comes to sales and marketing. We always kind of relied on a channel model primarily to sell and distribute. And that's a decision that we made early on for financial reasons. You know, if we had the, the funding support to do it direct, we would have. Um, so I think that's that's been a, you know, a, a challenge and something, you know, we're still kind of in the process of, of working through as we have this kind of hybrid approach today. Um, you know, the other thing, you know, just a very specific challenge was we built this product very simply and effectively for that active shooter scenario that you described earlier. We wanted to solve that problem so badly and we had customers purchase the product for that. But what happened was, fortunately, the product didn't get used very much. You know, they'd run a drill now and again, but it was set up in such a way that it just wasn't being used for other types of emergencies. So we had to really learn how to make the app, make the service more relevant to day-to-day -day use. So we added things like announcements, we added tips, we added the ability to really create more categories of incidents. Um, you know, so those are the types of things, and then Sentry obviously during COVID. So uh, making the product more useful is really important, I think. You wanna maintain simplicity of the functionality, of the usability. Uh, but you also want to marry, um, use you know, all the more regular use, especially with a mobile app these days. We know mobile apps you don't use; they kind of get disappeared off your phone, and uh, that's not very good when you're having an emergency. You can't even find your emergency app. So, um, so those are some of the challenges. There's certainly been more. Honestly, I feel like we faced just about every challenge we could face. You know, during COVID, obviously, get, having our, our customers freeze accounts was was very tough. Um, we had supply chain issues trying to create rescue. Uh, we had reliability issues that we had to overcome by upgrading chips. Uh, we had team issues. 
uh, where we had some, uh, you know, transition periods that were kind of forced upon us. Um, and, uh, but we're here today. We, you know, we've made it this far. We're still serving our customers. We're still really proud of what we're doing for our customers. And I think there's a bright future ahead. So, um, so yeah, I think those, that's a, that's a spattering of challenges we faced along the way. I'm sure I missed many others. <laughs> it, and so imitation is the greatest form of flattery, right? And, and you're starting to see copycats trying to come out, trying to emulate some of the stuff that you've done. Talk about what continues to set you apart, because being early is obviously an advantage, but it's also difficult. But you continue to lead this area. And, and so talk about that of how you just continue developing internally, making sure you're always leading this category, not just being passed up by copycats. Right. Yeah, no, that's that's a co very common question. You know, these these new apps will pop up. And I definitely think there's a difference between most of what you see in terms of apps and they're kind of marketed that way as right. Sure. As 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 apps or mobile apps for for emergency management or safety, but they're not really platforms. And I think the thing that sets us apart primarily is our end to end approach. So for every incident in our system, there's a beginning, there's an end, there's for an emergency. And then there's all these different types of communication in between. There's the two way chat. There's the voice chat, there's the photos and videos, there's the emergency plans, there's the mass notifications, there's the E911 call with really accurate 911 routing. Um, now we have hardware. So I think we kind of tie and we have integrations. We have integrations with so many great third party systems, phone systems, uh, and, you know, and many others. So I would say just having a kind of a holistic view towards let's create a platform that actually solves all the different use cases for an emergency and not a, something that's just another point solution that's still going to require me to get a bunch of other point solutions. And then now my IT department has to figure out how to tie it all together. You know, the user management, uh, you know, the notifications, the dual, you know, do I, do I say something once in the mobile app and then once in the radio and then once in the PA system? Like, no, I think you can do that all in one place. So those have been little kind of technical challenges we've, we've, had to tackle along the way and then now again having this hardware integrated hardware software has always been something that i've been most drawn to you know companies like apple and tesla i think they have an inherent advantage when you make that investment because it's so native it's not just an integration that could easily break and it's it's kind of surface level like this is natively built for our software and so when i sell this hardware it's really i'm selling software um, and, uh, and I, and, and I know it's going to work. I know it's not reliant on some third party company that I have to make sure I'm in compliant with their APIs and things haven't changed. And when it's coming to emergencies, I think people want comfort. And so fully integrated end to end emergency management with our own E911 infrastructure. I don't know of any other companies that are doing that today. Yeah. Yeah. And, and doing a bunch of research for this episode in particular, you see on the surface level what looks like copycats and as soon as you drill deep you, it's it's very obvious the sophistication that punch alert has that that a lot of these other ones are just nowhere in the same hemisphere yeah i would agree and i and i not that i would criticize any organization for purchasing those i think it's great to take a step in a positive direction towards safety and communication no matter what it is as long as you're purchasing something that's reliable go for it um i think that's wonderful obviously I'd, prefer you purchase ours, but um, but just doing anything is uh, definitely better than nothing. And that's, I think, the biggest competitor we have is the status quo. Is I'm good, I've, I've already invested in video surveillance. I've checked that box. 
I have a mass notification system. It sends out SMS to everyone. That's great. I'm glad you have those systems, but it's not about checking the boxes. It's about can we actually make our organization safer in the event of an incident? And I think those things leave some room for improvement. I love the fact that even as a, a, a diehard competitor, it does not sway your wisdom of, hey, even if we're not the right solution for you, get a solution. Mm -hmm. And if you need to graduate up to ours at some point, we'll be here for you, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> hey, one other thing that you mentioned early on that we just kind of breezed by it, and I want to circle back to that a little bit. Mm -hmm. One, it's very clear you honor your, your parents and your family. I love that about you. I really love that about you. But you also mentioned, and your father, I mean, computer associates, anybody listening should know that. I mean, it, it may be the high water mark. I think the last I saw was in 2018. They had 11,500 employees. That's a good size company. Mm -hmm. um, but you also mentioned your mother mm -hmm. being you know, a successful business person. Can you give us a glimpse as to, you know, what what she's done? Oh, I'd love to. So my parents met at Queens College in New York. And, uh, and my mother actually introduced my father to his business partner, Charles Wong. That's a separate story. My mother went on, you know, after, after graduating and, and, and from actual some inspiration for my father actually to find her true passion which was in teaching in math education and she became a teacher and she it, to describe her as the best teacher i've known is really an understatement um my mother was born to to teach and to inspire young people to be better versions of themselves and then to teach others so you know she started this math program called time 2000 at a queen's college which provides, initially it was free, and it's still almost free, education for students that commit to becoming math teachers. And she started that program from scratch. And so, um, you know, she's been running that program for, for many years now. She's a very, very well-published author and very well-respected in, in, in her field. But the, the thing that you see so obviously, so blatantly, every single year every single day is that her students absolutely love her and they credit her with changing their lives and they spread that love onto their students so my mother has this unbelievable exponential positive effect on the world it's so blatantly pure and wonderful that you just it's like oh there is goodness you know because that's all it is it's not about making tons of money she's a professor she does fine but uh you know the the these students think of her as a mother. Some of them probably call her <laughs> their, their mother. So I can actually call her my mother, but they, they think of her that way. And um, she has these conferences and it's, it's, it's just so uh, amazing to see. So she's just done so much positive for the world. You know, being a teacher, there's really no more important thing in the world, I think. And, and math education, you know, she's trying to take math out of where some people think of it as this, this scary thing or this you know, some folks just say, I can't do math or I don't get it. Why do I have to do math? And or I stink at that or, you know, so there's that kind of uh, thought process that's out there. And she's gone uh, such a long way to change that and help teachers 
make students that are scared of math start to actually appreciate it and love it. Like, what is it? Wow, it's this language for the universe. It's amazing. And so she's a really inspirational person and has helped so many people. That's my mother. Um, there is no limit to how much love she has to give. So that, that's, that's uh, um, I couldn't be more proud of her. And I couldn't be more proud of my dad. As you said, uh, you know, I don't know how many employees they, they had at their peak. Um, something in that range, 11,000. I mean, it's, it's a huge company. And he, he, he was the original. He and Charles Wong started this company together. He was the original person that actually wrote the code for their initial software. There really wasn't a software industry at all when he got started, which is hard to think about. This is in the 70s. You know, I was born in 79, and he'd already been doing it for a few years. And they were selling software for mainframes. At the time, nobody even knew what that was. They were like, what do you mean? I buy a mainframe, and then IBM has some software on it already. Like, no, 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 we're, we're, there are problems with it. Big ones. You spent millions of dollars on these mainframes. Maybe you should buy some software to help you use it better. And uh, that worked out pretty well. So they basically were at the dawn and helped start the software industry as we know it today. And, uh, you know, and, and he's a very modest person. So you can tell, you, I'm sure you could find his story and how that came about and all the, the, the twists and turns. But he grew that company into, I believe, maybe $5 billion in revenue. And I don't think that happens very often. Uh, and certainly not something I would ever expect to accomplish in my life. If I can have a fraction of my parents' impact on the world, a very, very small fraction, I would consider my life a great success. Well, you are. You are a ripple maker, uh, which is why you're on here. But now I have a better understanding of, of where your humility and your gratitude and your passion come from um, that really does help a lot so thank you for sharing that part with us and honoring your parents in such a wonderful way man i mean it's that's a beautiful thing thank you well they deserve it and i'm quite lucky so uh i wish that luck on anyone else you know in this world because uh, i i do every time i deal with something hard i do wonder like this is hard, but I have so much support beneath me. And I feel for those folks that don't have that same level of support. And I hope they go out and find it. If they don't have that, what I've been so lucky to have with my parents and my network, I hope they go out and find it with their friends, with their, find their own mentors and find their own network, create that network. Cause I think without it, it's tough. Entrepreneurship, as we know, is, as you know, can be tough and it can be lonely. And having that support structure is just so critical. Well, you're certainly out there impacting people on a major level, right? You're, what you've built is saving actual lives, right? That's not a, just an indirect impact. You are directly impacting so many lives. So thank you for coming on and sharing your story. Um, anybody that wants to learn more about PunchAlert, go to punchalert.com. We'll also put in the notes uh, your LinkedIn so that way people can reach out to you directly if they have other questions or thoughts. Any any final things either of you uh want to add before we sign off today? Um, I just want to thank you guys for having me on, really. Um, you know, Gary, I've, we've known each other for years, and I've been admiring you and your personality and your positive impact on everyone around you. Uh, I think it's so great that you did this podcast as well to further spread that even beyond your network because you're 
you're such a good coach and mentor and have such a, I don't know, positive outlook on all of our potential. So thank you for staying in touch with me and, and uh, for having me on today. I really do appreciate it. It's, it's our pleasure. And uh, you can blame Ben because this was his idea. I just said, Ooh, I like that idea. <laughs> I joined him when we started this podcast. So Ben, thank you for being who you are too. This is uh, such a joy to be able to do this. If I was a billionaire, I would still do this. Um, it's, it's that much fun. Yes, so, yeah, it is. Thank you.